You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, Ari Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Sarah Marshall. Uh, Sarah, could you introduce yourself? Hello. I am a traveling journalist and semi-professional dog sitter, and we're going to talk today about Disney and Satan. <laughs> Are two of my recent topics, right? Recent and recurring themes, actually, <laughs> and um, and possibly possibly dogs. We'll, we'll see how and the possibly dogs how it goes. As, as I say that, my cat is jumping up to rip her face against the computer as she always does uh, during these recordings. Well, you gotta have the third guest, the second <laughs> guest. Yeah, yeah. The, the cam. It, it, she comes in a little too soon though. Sometimes. Um, so yeah. So um, we uh, we did a, an episode about it. A little more, a little more than a year ago, about as a year about Titanic. That was one of my favorite uh, conversations I've had on this platform. So I'll, I'll link to that below, and um, uh, I encourage people to check that out. And you wrote a great piece about the making of Titanic. Um, but okay, we're not talking about that today. We're talking about Satan, um, and uh, but more specifically, uh, the um, satanic ritual abuse panic that mm-hmm. happened in the 1980s. So you, um, so you also host a podcast. Mm-hmm. It's, is it called You're Wrong About? It is. You're Wrong About dot, 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 technically. Okay, so, <laughs> so we'll link to that also. And I think the first episode of that is about this topic, right? About the... Um, yeah. Uh, the, the, about know, the, the satanic panic. As, yeah, as this was our story. Yeah. And, that, and I, we were starting this podcast, and I was like, well, I've always wanted to do more research on the satanic panic. Like, that's always seemed weird to me, and started reading, and essentially have not stopped, and it's now been 15 months. And, you know, there are just topics where – sorry, my phone's ringing. Um, getting a call from a mysterious L.A. number. I think it's <laughs> some sort of fund for something. Um, yeah, there are topics that – choose you and that it's like wandering into a maze and then you're like well i live here now i'm not good at mazes (laughs) Mm -hmm. okay so yeah so you're within within the story so probably i don't know i guess maybe depends how old you are whether you Mm -hmm. like know about this story and i maybe only heard about it growing up because as i mentioned to you one of the places where this happened was in the town next to mine and Mm -hmm. i grew up in south orange new jersey and one of the Mm -hmm. daycares where this happened was in maplewood new jersey Something like you, you remember the name, but I don't even. It's like we, we care, yeah. And it was a woman named Margaret Kelly Michaels, and this was like really like one of the first big cases because the first the first big case in the U.S. was the McMartin daycare case in Southern California, which started in 1983. And once that appeared in the news, um, just all these other cases popped up around the country. And so it, it kind of jumps from Southern California to Maplewood, New Jersey, to Miami, Florida, to Jordan, Minnesota. Um, but yeah, that was, I, I see that as, as one of, you know, I, I've started visualizing the satanic panic as, as kind of a literal epidemic and thinking a lot about like Stephen King's The Strand, The Stand, Stephen King's The Stand or the Andromeda Strain. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know that this this is one of the first places where you can you can see the captain trips showing up. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm so curious. What do you what do you recall about that from and from this vantage point of like, you know, one of the you know, the idea of being kind of 
an actual child at this time is so interesting too, because, you know, I was, my connection to it, I was born in 1988 and my mom at the time just took it as a given that like, I'm not putting my kid in daycare. It is too dangerous. Like your dad is going to take care of you. And that's why kind of why we're going to stay married. And (laughs) I do not have a good relationship with my father who, you know, he like, there were many reasons that he was a stay at home dad during those years. Like he wasn't interested in working and there was like a baby and like he needed to take care of the baby. But like that, like I have spent the last 30 years of my life hearing about how he had done this like above and beyond thing of taking care of a child, which no man in history has done before and ever had again, (laughs) you know, and just with this sense of like debt that I owed to him for like, not letting me die essentially. Cause that was just the way that his resentment manifested. It was going to come out some other way. <laughs> like it was, if it hadn't been that, it would have been something else. But, you know, I was talking to my mom recently and she was like, well, I wasn't going to put you in daycare. And I was like, am I also a product of the satanic panic? Like are my dad issues caused by some journalists getting excited in LA in the early eighties? Like really? That's, that's fascinating. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I just, um, you know, I, I was born in 83, um, so I was too young to understand anything, you know, while it was happening. Um, but I do, but, like, I was aware of it as I got a little bit older. Like, I, I did go to daycare. <laughs> it wasn't that one. Um, and you made it. Yeah, okay. survived somehow. And But, yeah, I, I do have a memory of, like, driving driving somewhere and my mom or dad, like, being like, oh, that's that building over there where the that thing happened. Um, you know, hmm. 10 years ago or whatever. And I kind of vaguely hmm. remember people just like joking about it or referring to it or something, but it wasn't like, um, you know, this is the, you know, big event that like <laughs> everyone is obsessed with in town or like, or the mm-hmm. event that Darren, no, no one wants to talk about anymore. It was, it was so disgraceful. Um, mm-hmm. it was, I guess it was more like kind of an oddity, but why don't we say, mm-hmm. or for people who don't know, why don't we kind of say like, yeah. lay out what happened in this weird historical episode? Yeah. So the satanic panic comes out of the fact that in the late 70s, America suddenly realized that child sexual abuse was a thing that happened, which people had kind of known before. But just there, you know, the Kinsey report, I believe, argues that, you know, it's it it's one in a million and it's, you know, the, the general sense and what you hear about um people who experienced some form of, of sexual abuse in the 50s and 60s and, you know, usually perpetrated by a family member because that's how cases break down statistically. That's normally what happens. It's someone in the family or known to the family and kind of trusted is that, you know, they, a family member, if it was an, ex, an extended family member would, would molest a child and then the parents would be like, okay, like, we found out like, we're not going to leave you alone with uncle Phil anymore. We're not going to make a scene about it. We're not going to go to the police. Like we're not going to pull apart the family or anything like that. Like we're just going to quietly remove you from the situation. And if we don't talk about it to you, and if we don't communicate to you that it was a bad thing that happened, then like you will forget about it. And I think that did happen to a lot of people where, we encode memory based on our sense of whether or not it was significant. And 
if there's nothing in the way that something that happened to you is, you know, received by your family members that validates the fact that it was a bad thing, then you will be less likely to have clear memories of it, potentially. Um, you will not have people around you communicating to you that this was important. Mm-hmm. And if there is a sense of kind of family mandated amnesia about it, where like everyone literally remembers what happened, but they're, you know, we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to make a big deal out of it. Like we can't, we must maintain a good, you know, we must be able to all be polite to each other. Like this seemed to be the way that people reacted to child abuse kind of in middle America um, in, in the baby boomer years. And so my sense is that a lot of women who then started having children in the eighties um, had suffered some form of abuse that just was not taken seriously when they were growing up and had a, a sense of, you know, not this time, not now, like I'm not going to treat my child that way, hmm. which was all completely justifiable. Uh-huh. And did you, just, a, just a yeah. uh, side note, did you, have you seen the Netflix documentary abducted in plain sight? No. What's, what's that about? Uh, I would recommend it. Um, it's on the theme of um, a child predator, but it's a very, very strange story um, that has, it's like, it has like a, a number of twists that are so unbelievable that if they were in, you know, a book or a movie, you would say this could never happen in real life. But like it actually mm-hmm. happened to this family in Idaho, basically mm-hmm. a, um, a family friend um, uh, kidnapped uh, like a nine or 10 year old girl and um a lot of like really strange things happened after that but it was very much like after it happened it was like yeah let's just not talk about this anymore they even let the guy keep on coming over and hanging out and even sleeping in the uh girl's bed uh with mm. the family's permission so it was a lot of really really strange things wow. happening uh the family and and the perpetrator are both mormon that seemed to have play some role in the way they viewed these things um but yeah, I, I recommend <laughs> if you're interested in this topic or just want to watch a really strange story uh, abducted in plain sight. Okay, but, but mm. c- continuing on. Yeah, yeah, and I think that there was a sense in the United States that we had ignored uh, child sexual abuse for so long, which we had, and now somehow needed to make up for that, and so. You know, this enters the public conversation in the late 70s. It becomes a feminist issue. Um, It becomes something where, you know, in in this way that we see over and over with abuse dynamics, like so many people, especially, you know, in in the conversation around feminism, so many women felt that they were thought that they were the only ones and they weren't. And they realized how widespread it was. And so I think there is this sense of, you know, we need to take sexual abuse seriously because there's also literature mid-century psychiatric literature saying that, you know, a an adult man exposing himself to a small child, it's like, yes, it's upsetting, but it's like seeing a spider. And it's like, it's not, it's just not. And it's, I, I can see wanting to believe that and wanting to believe that, you know, that kind of harm is, uh, is not real, but it is. And, uh, you know, there has just been this cultural history of denial and, uh, and also of not taking seriously, um, the traumatic experiences of children. And so there's just this swerve into overcorrection. And at the same time, women who grew up in this culture of abuse that just gets ignored or invalidated or shoved under the rug um, want to do right by their own children. 
And so out of all of these good intentions, we get the McMartin case, which is just a fascinating example of a spark falling on exactly the right tinder. Um, I mean, honestly, a good kind of companion piece to all this would be there's a, a wonderful article, I believe, by Skip Hollinsworth in uh, Texas Monthly about just like a spate of wildfire, or not wildfires, just like fires that sweep through dry, grassy farmland in the Texas panhandle and how just, you know, like that, you have a, you know, just a down power line and then suddenly it just, it hits exactly the right fuel and it just spreads in a flash. And that was kind of what the the attitudes in America were, I think, in the early 80s. And so the McMartin case begins when at, at McMartin, which is the kind of, let me actually, I want to double check on if it was a preschool or a daycare, because that's an important, I want to say preschool, but like I always, I'm getting to the age where like I don't trust my retention of anything. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a preschool. Matt <laughs> McMurray is kind of the best, known as the best preschool in Manhattan Beach, California. Um, the school that you want to get your kids into, it's an institution, it's been there for decades, it's trusted, it's loved. Um, a kid comes home one day, he's two or three years old and his mother determines that based on some things that he says, and part of the trouble of this too, is that we can't, you know, these conversations get kind of reconstructed and narrativized and it's hard to know now, you know, what did he say or do that, that gave her this sense but his mother suspects that he was anally sodomized at school um, and goes to the police. And what we later learn, what the public much later learns, is that she's diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic and that she dies many years later from complications of acute alcoholism. Hmm. And her the claims that she's bringing to the police and to the district attorney as this case develops become increasingly strange and unlikely to, to the point of impossibility. But she goes to the police with her worry that her son has been abused at his preschool. And the police respond by, you know, taking down her allegations, all of which are, and she continues to question her son and to get more, more claims um, develop more claims from talking with him. And then the police, because this is the early 80s and they have not worked on cases like this before, really, and they're just kind of flying blind, send a letter to current and to children, to parents. The police send a letter to parents of current and former students at McMartin saying, we have reason to believe that a child at McMartin has been abused. And here is a list of what may have happened to your child, like these very graphic things. Um, I can read you the list <laughs> if you want. Sure, you want. why not? Um, let me find it. I have my, some of my materials here. Um, this is a, an excellent history, We Believe the Children, by Richard Beck. Um, let's see. I just happen to have it right here. Um, okay. Thank you. 
Okay, so this is September of 1983. Dear parent, this department is conducting a criminal investigation involving child molestation. Ray Bucky, an employee of the Ray Bucky, an employee of Virginia McMartin's preschool, was arrested September 7, 1983, by this department. Records indicate that your child has been or is currently a student at the preschool. We are asking your assistance in this continuing investigation. Please question your child to see if he or she has been a witness to any crime or if he or she has been a victim. Our investigation indicates that possible criminal acts include oral sex, fondling of genitals, buttock or chest area, and sodomy, possibly committed under the pretense of, quote, taking the child's temperature. Also, photos may have been taken. Also, photos may have been taken of children without their clothing. Any information from your child regarding having ever observed Ray Bucky to leave the to leave a classroom alone with a child during any nap period, or if they have ever observed Ray Bucky tie up a child, is important. We ask you to keep this investigation strictly confidential because of the nature of the charges and the highly emotional effect it could have on our community. Please do not discuss this investigation with anyone outside your imagine, with anyone outside your immediate family. And I've written in the margin as if, <laughs> which I stand by as a comment. <laughs> and so, uh, I mean, just what would you guess happens next? <laughs> right. So, you know, I've listened to your episode talking about this, but I mean, so the obvious, even if I hadn't listened to it, the obvious objection is like, you know, if you talk to a three or four year old, and ask them what happened, like, over the last six months. They're mm-hmm. not going to give you an accurate answer. And that seems obvious to me. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. it, like, why was, it, why was it not obvious to these people uh, 37 years ago? I mean, there's, a, there's an idea at play here that I think we still have in this country, and that is a very human thing, which is that there's this idea. And so what happens, of course, is that parents question their children and, Children, you know, even if they are obstinate that no, nothing happened, they don't know what they're talking about, they don't remember anything, they then get taken to social workers who are are doing the questioning for the police, led by a woman named Kay McFarland who's claiming to have a degree that she does not have that would qualify her to do this work. And uh, essentially one child will under parental or adult pressure produce a scenario and then the other children will be pressured to corroborate it. So little kids are being treated like, you know, perps questioned by the police that are trying to get them to flip on their co-defendants. And there's a sense that you can see animating this whole investigation that, you know, children don't lie. Children don't make up stories like children tell the truth. And it's like, it doesn't say anything bad about the child that if they're being pressured by an adult or if they're being taken by an adult into kind of a, you know, a play acting scenario where, you know, they're playing with dolls and puppets and sort of, you know, kids, kids at that age, three and four year olds slip very easily into sort of play and imagination and then quickly back into real life. And, you know, it's, it's it's not saying anything unkind about them to say that what they're saying isn't the literal truth. Like mm-hmm. they're they're in situations where they feel they're being asked to play imagination games or where adults are are pressuring them to support a story that some other child 
has told. And, you know, there's, and this was recorded. And so we have transcripts of social workers saying to these kids, you know, your friend told us what happened. Like, why don't you tell us? Do you want us to think that you're dumb? Mm -hmm. Like, or, you know, you have to help the littler kids. You're one of the big kids and you have to help (laughs) the littler kids by, by telling us this story too. And if you don't help us, then, you know, you're not going to save the little kids from bad stuff happening to them, you Mm -hmm. know, and just the kind of, of pressure tactics that work pretty well with adults, like adults will confess to crimes that they didn't commit or implicate people in crimes that they, you know, didn't witness. Like it's not that hard to get a grown up to do that kind of thing. And we're using that kind of pressure on small children. And I think that there's, and in the, so in the case that you grew up uh, in the neighboring town to the case in Maplewood, there's a memoir written by the mother of one of the alleged victims that's called Not My Child. And it's about how, you know, after this alleged abuse took place, her daughter suddenly starts, you know, behaving in ways that only an abused child would behave in, you know, like, and, and they're, they're normal toddler and little kid behaviors, you know, parents. And in, in all these cases, this is kind of a, a general phenomenon too, that, Parents say, you know, after the abuse, you know, this explains why my kid started, you know, hitting or like put her finger in her anus or started masturbating or lying or, you know, being difficult. And it's like, you might have just gotten a regular kid. Your kid <laughs> might just be acting like a kid. Uh-huh. And, that, you know, I think that the ways that we idealize the child also lead us to really believe um sort of these believe in these fantasy versions of children that don't exist and we in the end punish our children for not conforming to that Mm -hmm. so okay so how does the um the satanic part Mm, come in is is that in the first case is that or is that held until some of the later cases the satanic part comes up in mcmartin and the way that it does um is because there's a book that has come out in 1980 that became a a minor bestseller called michelle remembers which is a case in which a canadian woman went into therapy um with her the therapist she'd had in college and returned to this guy named lawrence pazder and they went through a 15 month long series of sessions where he regressed her or, you know, attempted to regress her to recover memories of, uh, of her childhood because she came in with a, you know, just general depression. She just had a miscarriage. She was grieving that in a way that seemed, you know, that her doctor didn't think made sense, which I think could also have a lot to do with just, you know, the medical establishment, not really making space for the grief that can accompany miscarriage. Mm -hmm. Um, And this, and I think she had a a sense that, you know, women also tend to have after, after a miscarriage of, you know, why didn't my body not do the thing, the one thing that it's supposed to be able to do what's wrong with me. And just carrying these general feelings of unworthiness and, uh, just having trouble coping the way that human beings do. And her therapist who had worked with her for quite a long time previously was like, well, we've gone over your whole childhood. So there's nothing, you know, literally in, in what you've told me of your past that could explain this. So like, maybe there's something you don't remember. And 
sorry, hold on. Um, and so he starts regressing her to her memories as a five-year-old. And she first produces a scenario about, you know, this, what feels like kind of a dream vision of um, her mother takes her to this house and these adults, you know, pick her up and point her in the cardinal directions. And then there's, you know, candles and chanting and, um, and Dr. Pastor is like, well, that, that sounds kind of potentially satanic. Um, and they start kind of leading each other toward that. And so she, uh, and what happens and what we see in the eighties and in, in the, reco- in the boom of uh, recovered memory therapy, which becomes extremely, you know, ha- has, has what we now call a moment at this time is that an experience that, uh, certainly hundreds, perhaps thousands of women have is going into a therapist and, you know, for at a certain point, you can go in for anything. You can go in for an eating disorder. You can go in because you have mild depression. You can go in just because you want to try therapy and work through some stuff. And a therapist who is trained in the school of thought will tell you, you were sexually abused and I can tell even if you can't. And even though you have no memories of this, I will help you to recover the memories and to relive the trauma. And then you will be better. And, you know, women during this time came in and were like, yes, I was sexually abused and it happened on these occasions. And this is what happened. And this is what I remember. And therapists will say, no, that's not traumatic enough. There's something else. You've repressed some worse abuse and we have to, you know, don't do my job for me. <laughs> like I will tell you what you, what you experienced and what you did not and go through a process of attempting to recover memories that involves, you know, many therapists use hypnosis, which we know from, from the studies that have been conducted on hypnosis that, um, you know, hypnosis is a relaxation technique. It essentially means that you can be highly focused on one aspect of your thoughts and lose focus on your surroundings or on kind of other aspects of your mind. I've been hypnotized. It was great. Um, it did not lead me any closer to objective truth <laughs> in my personal anecdotal experience um, than, than other methods have. It's it's not a magic tool for for getting back to the actual past it's a way of essentially being highly focused on what you're at being asked to pay attention to and also being highly suggestible um and so if you are if you use hypnosis or more to the point someone uses hypnosis on you to refresh your memory or kind of take you back to focus on your memory of something that happened 10 20 30 years ago you will not be any likelier to be literally accurate in your memories, but you will be much more confident that what you remember is true Uh once you've been hypnotized, Um, which is part of why it's useful as a police tool, because if you use hypnosis on a witness, you won't get any closer to the truth necessarily just by using hypnosis. You will um, make someone much more suggestible to your version of events. If you are consciously or unconsciously leading them toward a certain determined outcome, for example, if you think you know who committed this crime and you're hypnotizing someone to try and get them to recall something that they witnessed and you will create a very compelling witness 
because they will have increased confidence in what they testify to, regardless mm-hmm. of whether or not it actually happened. And so hypnosis is used a lot in recovered memory therapy in the 80s. There's also techniques like even if you have no memories, tell yourself that you were abused because your therapist knows you must have been because you have bulimia and God knows that, you know, there's no other reason why anyone becomes bulimic and live with the knowledge that you've been abused for six months and see if memories happen. Or if you have, you know, a, a image, if an image flashes into your head of, you know, of some kind of abuse event, then, you know, that's not, a random thought that is a flashback. That's a memory. And now we have to take it in and expand it into a scenario or, you know, keep a dream journal. And then whatever you dream of is necessarily a link to the past. It's necessarily a reflection of what literally happened to you. And so it's, it's all of these techniques that essentially, you know, say whatever images you encounter, whatever, thoughts you have are 100% accurate to what you experienced as a child. And I, your therapist, am 100% qualified to know the truth of them, and I will help you now to expand them into scenarios. And what happens is that uh, women recover alleged memories and go through what therapists at the time call ab reaction, which is where you have to relive the traumatic event and relive the trauma of it and essentially experience this form of victimhood that you're describing in a pretty real way. And when you don't get better, because we don't actually become whole people at any time in our lives, we're just fragile, weird humans. And that's what this is all about. Um, When you don't get better, when you don't integrate and become well and whole again, then your therapist will say to you, okay, there's worse stuff. You're repressing stuff still. We have to go back in. We have to keep digging. And that's how we get these pretty commonplace progressions where you come in, you have no memories of abuse. You go through these memory recovery techniques, which your therapist tells you, you know, never produce false memories, never lead anyone to believe something happened to them that didn't. Um, And when what you recall when what you recall is not severe enough to make you better, then you have to keep unearthing worse and worse traumas. And so it goes from my family member molested me to I was a memory. I was abused satanically to I was a member of an intergenerational coven and I was used to breed babies that were sacrificed for Satan for years and years. I mean, there's a lot of a recent, um, horror movie that came out a year or two ago, Hereditary, yeah. Oh, yeah, yes, exactly. It's like that. Um, but without Tony Collette. <laughs> and um, and so this is a, there is a ton of satanic ritual abuse narrative also in, in the recovered memory movement and therapy in the 80s. And it gets its start with Michelle Remembers because in the same way that we see in, you know, what happens to women in therapy later on, Michelle, you know, recovers a memory of this kind of uncomfortable and unpleasant, but not necessarily Satanist, not particularly horrific ritual that she's used um, in. And 
they keep going and things get progressively worse. And there's a sense of we have to get to the worst thing that you ever experienced and then you'll be better and then you'll come out the other side. And it goes to, you know, she's in these therapy sessions for six hours a day and it, it dominates her entire life and um, is just, you know, there. and this therapy is recorded and becomes the material that makes up much of the book. And so there's a lot of material in there. That's her saying, you know, I can't like, I feel like I'm going crazy. I can't believe that these memories are real. I can't believe that I really did these things. Like how could, this is too horrible. I can't go on. And her doctor's like, no, you have to keep going. We have to keep regressing you or you'll, or you'll never get out the other side. Like we have to get through. Um, and the, the way that that narrative resolves for her is that they are at this ritual, you know, and after we've seen, you know, they're, they're sacrificing kittens and sacrificing babies and keeping her in a cage filled with snakes for, you know, weeks on end. And, uh, and during a period when, you know, there are records showing that she was in school and had fine attendance uh-huh. and, had, you know, two sisters who weren't mentioned in the book and who said none of this ever happened. I mean, there's gray area and everything, but there are key aspects of the narrative that are directly contradicted by, by the records that we have. Um, the way this narrative resolves is that they, the Satanists hold a ritual that goes on for weeks on end and finally summons forth Satan who has all of the, you know, speaks in, um, speaks in verse, which is, that's, that's hard it's hard to, to get someone to, to speak in rhymes continually. And that, that's a tough, you know. Well, if you're the, you know, Prince of Darkness or super supernatural being. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, right. Like it, it does corroborate the idea that someone has supernatural powers. They can speak in spontaneous rhymes. Cause I, you know, I can't do that. Um, <laughs> Satan speaks in all of these poems about, you know, and the gist of it always is that, you know, there is no love in the world. There's only darkness. Like, embrace me. Embrace embrace darkness. Embrace despair. You will never be loved. Like, love is stupid. And, and that in, in this scenario, um, Michelle defies Satan and refused, refuses to be, you know, refuses to be tempted into doubt and despair, essentially. And then the Virgin Mary comes and tells her, you know, you have been made to see all this so that you can warn the world and like your suffering served a purpose and you are loved and it's okay. And so it becomes this redemption narrative where it's about, you know, rejecting the figures that tell you that love is an illusion and you're not worthy of it and embracing a way of life that says that love exists and you can love and be loved, which is like the central drama of all of our lives like it i think it reflects truth um but it it's narrativized in a way that um that readers take as as literal truth and so there's you know there's all of the questions around this therapy that is depicted in this book and then the book is published in 1980 um sells a few hundred thousand copies like does pretty well but then Michelle and her therapist, who she has since married, um, Lawrence Pazder, they 
start going to speak at seminars and trainings for social workers who are being trained on how to recognize signs of sexual abuse and how to recognize how to question children who may have been abused. And so Lawrence Pastor is a consultant and, and the book is being, you know, handed out to, to psychotherapists and to social workers and treated as a clinical text of some kind, which it is not, mm-hmm. you know, books, nonfiction books aren't fact checked. <laughs> and, um, and so Lawrence Pastor is brought on as a consultant at some point in the McMartin investigation. And essentially that's where the social workers who were working on that case get the idea to say, you know, well, let's ask the kids about, you know, was there any satanic stuff happening? Like, were you forced to drink blood? Were you forced to drink urine? Did you sacrifice animals? Like, were you, was there chanting? Were there rows? Were there black candles? Like anything like that. And this is, you know, they're already pretty aggressively questioning these little kids about all sorts of other things that the kids begin by, you know, many of them begin by saying did not happen to them. And then after a while say, well, yes, it did. Because the social workers are also trained to believe that if a child says, no, I was not abused, then that's denial. And that is further evidence that they were. So if you obstinately say that nothing happened, then that's like another piece of Uh evidence something absolutely did happen so really kind of into this goulash (laughs) is thrown you know and if you're already being asked about you know things that seem just kind of hard to comprehend as a child who none of this has happened to like oral sodomy anal sodomy you know very the kinds of, of sex acts that really are, are quite rare in sexual abuse cases because it's, you know, the breakdown is it's, it's most commonly things that, that are non-penetrative and non-violent. And that, you know, that's the reason that we could, that America could ignore sexual abuse for so long was because you could talk yourself into believing that, you know, yeah, it happened, but it's not that bad. They won't remember it. It wasn't, you know, it's not as bad as it could have been. Let's just all move on and keep going to Thanksgiving like we always do. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, the the starting allegations are so severe that if you throw into that, like, well, did you ever drink animal blood or did you ever, were there ever robes? You, can, you know, I can see that as a child, it would be very easy to be like, yeah, sure, robes, whatever. Throw in robes. I was, Fine. Yes, there were robes. And we kicked a pony to death, I guess. <laughs> but but then wasn't it also also became like some kids saying you know they were levitated or people were flying around the room yeah like yeah that- that Ray Bucky flew in the air was one of the and that might have been that claim might have been there from the beginning um, and then later you know it can be and then we get into this uncomfortable area where you know and so once the once McMartin appears in the news which is in uh, the spring of 84, I believe, then the satanic ritual abuse allegations are much publicized because they're sensational Mm -hmm. and interesting. And then in other cases, in other daycare centers and other parts of America where parents are, you know, similarly just anxious and scared and feeling like, oh my God, like if this, if this preschool that was prestigious and loved in its community and existed without any sign of trouble for 25 years was satanically 
and sexually abusing children in huge numbers and everyone was in on it, which is, you know, what the reports are saying at the time. And we tend to trust the news. Then like, who's to say that the same thing isn't happening where I live? Who's to say that the same thing isn't happening at my daycare center at my preschool? Um, if, if there was no sign of it outwardly there either. And once you believe that there can be such a widespread conspiracy and that so much, so many awful things could be happening with no outward sign of it, then like, sure, throw in ritual abuse. Like that's at a certain point, no more unbelievable than anything else. And where it gets problematic is when these cases start going to trial and uh, district attorneys start thinking, well, we kind of might lose credibility with a jury if we're alleging that people were flying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so when these cases go to trial, interestingly enough, the ritual abuse allegations tend not to be part of the charges, tend not to be named at trial because oh, okay. they're seen as, as impeding the credibility of the case generally. But if you're questioning a, a child and they're telling a story or producing a story for you that involves equal part uh, sexual abuse and satanic abuse, and you throw out the satanic abuse for being unbelievable, you have to wonder about the material that you're getting through using the exact same methods of questioning. Yeah. Um, okay, so so multiple people were convicted in various places around the country mm-hmm. of abuse and went to, went to jail. About 190. Okay, so that's more than multiple. Yeah, that's um, yeah. that's a lot of people. A lot. Um, and when did people start to look at this again? Were cases overturned, or how did how did people realize that this was like a massive disaster? It's funny. I feel like there was never a large scale reckoning with this, and so there there are certain certain people who kind of early in the game started saying, you know, I don't. I don't know. This doesn't really make sense to me. And I think the first uh, journalist who really started speaking out um, about this consistently, I think, was Debbie Nathan, who wrote a book eventually called Satan's Silence about just investigating these cases and finding that they they really dead ended into nothing. Um, and she wrote about the Margaret Kelly Michaels case in New Jersey. And that was a case where, so the McMartin case was until the OJ Simpson trial, the most expensive trial in, in California history. And I believe the longest, like it holds all these superlatives and ended in no convictions. Um, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. It was a long wild goose chase and, you know, people, you know, eventually went free, but this was after losing, you know, the McMartin family lost their business, lost, you know, became pariahs in the community, lost years of their lives to this investigation and prosecution. Um, And it's similar throughout, Um, you know, the best case scenario is that you lose um, your money and your identity and your reputation and your time. And so the, you know, one of the next big cases was the Margaret Kelly Michaels case at We Care in New Jersey. She was convicted and was given, you know, an an incredibly stiff sentence and was eventually exonerated, but only after having served for several years. And that was a high profile conviction and a high profile exoneration. And by the time that happened, um, 
you know, it, I think that part of it was just that these cases had been in the news for long enough and Americans had had long enough to sit with the kind of outrageousness of the allegations and with watching, um, you know, enough cases that kind of fell apart as they were being prosecuted, although certainly many of them didn't, for the tide to just start turning gradually toward doubt. But there was never, you know, there's never been any kind of national systematic convictions integrity review about, you know, satanic abuse allegations, um, just as there's really very little systematic convictions integrity review at all in this country. Um, there certainly with recovered memory therapy, the the movement, the, the same thing kind of happened. There wasn't kind of a period when there was a, you know, a big case that got national attention or a big exoneration where America kind of sat up and was like, wait a minute, like, the, no, like this isn't happening. This isn't real. Um, it's more that the will to prosecute kind of calmed down and it kind of fizzled and you had these, you know, these headline generating arrests and indictments. And then, you know, I'm, I think certainly in the McMartin case, not leading to any convictions was a big part of it in a sense that like, if we had this case that started out so promisingly with like these dozens of children producing these stories and these, you know, that we, we've caught this whole nest of monsters up and, you know, we have them. Like if, if we couldn't convict these people, then like maybe there's something wrong with this whole scenario. But I honestly think, I don't think that there was ever a period when America kind of came to grips with the fact that we had so strongly believed such an unlikely story and destroyed so many people's lives because of it. I think it was more that we just gradually lost interest and became fixated on other things. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. I mean, people would rather <laughs> not, not grapple with the mistakes they made in the past. But, um, but speaking of that, I mean, have any of the, uh, children, like come forward as adults to talk about their experience and what they remember happening? I mean, I found very little of that and I'm very interested in that. It's just, you know, what was it like as a kid to, you know, and certainly, you know, just by mathematically, um, a lot of these people who were children at the time, if you're, if you're asked to tell a story and to rehearse it over and over again and to testify about it eventually, like we make memory by telling stories, you know, my memories are not real. They are my good faith effort to reconstruct or to tell myself a story about what happened when, but like, you know, every time I retell a story, I get a little bit farther away right. from how it actually happened. And if you as a very small child are asked to believe and live and relive a narrative where you were a victim of terrible abuses, then like that's traumatic. You went through real trauma. And if your family is putting pressure on you to implicate a possibly beloved caregiver and you don't, and that causes, you know, friction between you and your family, then that too is a trauma. And, you know, possibly producing the story that all the adults, all the trusted adults in your world want you to produce and knowing maybe deep down and carrying the knowledge that it's not true and that you contributed to, you know, putting, 
someone that you once cared about in jail, then that's a trauma. Like we did create a generation of traumatized children on top of, on top of the sexual abuse that was happening in America. Um, there is a, a child who once a child now an adult, but a man named Kyle Zerpolo who was at McMartin and who was pressured by his mother and stepfather to, you know, we know something happened to you. Like, we're going to keep taking you and to be questioned by these social workers, you know, just do what we want you to do who produced this testimony and always was aware that it wasn't true. And who later on, and this was written um, kind of as told to Debbie Nathan apologized to the McMartin family and to the workers at that preschool for, for being part of that. And their response was, you know, you don't know us an apology. You were a little kid. Yeah, it's hard to see any moral culpability for like a four-year-old, uh, you know, who's badgered into uh, repeating a story that adults are telling him or her to uh, yeah. repeat. Um, okay, let's let's just maybe briefly talk about some of the contemporary resonances mm. of this story mm. um, before we move on to Disney, the slightly mm-hmm. happier, maybe not topic. Um, maybe so, slightly. <laughs> so, so I was thinking about this today. So, one is, you know, um, this was like almost literally a witch hunt. Um, You know, maybe the closest thing to a natural witch hunt since Salem. And, and... Or since the, you know, the McCarthy hearings, anyway. Right, but they were looking for actual supernatural... Right, you're right. They were were looking for witches, more or less, Satanists. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And... Yeah, and the, the like forced confession kind of kind of thing, and children being children testifying against adults and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, one of President Trump's favorite phrases is "witch hunt" uh, to talk about the Mueller report. So mm-hmm. that continues to be a resonant, a resonant theme in American life. And he's you know playing on playing on that to make himself seem uh, falsely accused. Um, mm-hmm. The other is and he's throwing the he's throwing around the word exonerated like he just learned it, which I find very stressful. Like that always <laughs> nudges my blood pressure up. Anyway, go yeah. On. So another one is just the idea of um, kind of like a moral panic, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know if like I don't know if this quite qualifies as a, as a moral panic, but I, it seems like it does in in some ways. And you know, there's a lot of talk about. Uh, from conservatives talking about the left saying that like the left is now obsessed with moral panics and the prime one would be like the me too movement. Hmm. Um, and you know, that focused on like accusations of, of sexual abuse against men that, you know, happened years, like happened years ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw that comparison made, I think actually uh, I guess I had on the show brought that up, you know, hmm. this idea of, um, you know, uh, people can, just because there's a bunch of ac- accusations doesn't mean they're true. Like we saw what happened in like with the preschools and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, um, there's believe the children, which mm-hmm. is the, uh, which is the title of one of the, of the book you held up. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, that was a phrase that was used sort of time to say, yeah, like we believe, we believe the children, they're telling the truth as, as you laid out. And um, there are some people on the left who, who, especially when me too broke, started saying like, we believe the women. Yeah, believe um, women. Yeah, so hashtag believe women, and then yeah. and then that becomes like, oh, you believe women, do you? Well, did you believe the you know, uh, Tawana Brawley or whatever? You know, like uh, like you know, there's right. some small, there's some subset of false accusations of sexual abuse, <laughs> and mm-hmm. people who don't want to acknowledge any accusations of sexual abuse, um, you know, look at those and to cast doubt on on anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't I don't know what to make of all of these, but it, it does seem like 
you know, somehow the... Welcome to the uncomfortable area where I live <laughs> and where I built my cabin. Right. So, yeah, like the the, the themes that the moral, that the um, satanic ritual abuse brought out are definitely still alive with us today. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not exactly like the Satanism stuff. You don't hear a ton about Satanism in the news anymore. Um, but a lot of uh, the other stuff so is still much, with us. But I, it, this, it could make a comeback at any time. There's, I mean, there's like actually, happened, you like, know, there's actually a documentary plague. that I think is called Church of Satan that's coming out. That's about the actual Church of Satan, which is kind of a quasi religious parody group is or it something. Pale Satan. May, yes, that's the, yeah. I think yeah, there's right. a Church of Satan and the Satanic Temple. There's an important distinction. There is a a uh, rift at a certain point, and they went their separate ways. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Hail, you're right. Hail Satan is the the title of the documentary, which I haven't seen yet, but it does look kind of interesting. Um, but yes, yeah, so, you know, so those, so and they kind of portray themselves as not a. Um, you know, group that is hoping to summon the Dark Lord, but is like a critique of mainstream religion and mm-hmm. um, doing things like, you know, the the in Alabama where they wanted to put a statue or what a monument to the Ten Commandments, demanding mm-hmm. that they put a monument to, you know, a, a demon from the Bible or something. All I believe, yeah, yeah, there as well. So it's that kind of a little Somebody. bit like prankstery stuff, but um, yeah, so that's that's different than the Satanists as they were envisioned. Uh, in the early 80s where it was like, this is, you know, I guess it was influenced by like Rosemary's Baby and other mm-hmm. Hollywood depictions of, of Satanists. So anyway, yeah, what do you, what do you, how do you see the story like reflected in, mm-hmm. if at all, in, in today's uh, world? I mean, to me, the, the most important distinct, well, first of all, was Salem, what is, what we forget about Salem, because so many of us weren't old enough in the 1690s to be paying any attention, is uh, that one of the key judges in the Salem witch trials after the fact was like, we wrongfully convicted a lot of people. Like we executed people who did nothing. We need to like sit with this and reckon with this and try and make sure that this never happens again, which uh, prosecutors are not known for doing and judges are not known for doing in this country and in places where wrongful convictions occur today. Um, So the courts in Salem based on some metrics were operating, you know, more justly than, you know, than courts in America today. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you can, that's debatable on many counts, but that's, that's my opinion as a historian. Um, and then in terms of moral panic, it's, it's, it's really interesting to think about how do moral panics manifest and what, kind of a culprit do they tend to point the finger at because the satanic panic was a moral panic the similar the the kind of cry that uh anita bryant raised in the late 70s about you know we have to strip rights from gay men because they're vampires who want to you know all they want to do is sexually corrupt and abuse our children and Therefore, we have to stop them from being able to work in schools and so on. You know, that was a moral panic. Um, looking at at those, there's, and, you know, and focusing on, you know, looking at, at the satanic panic as a moral panic. That was something that was motivated by the way that the American status quo, the, the patriarchy had, created a society that allowed sexual abuse to flourish and that allowed sexual abuse, even in the late seventies to be seen as something that like, if a father is abusing his children, 
like, obviously the last resort is to take him out of the home. Like we all know as civilized late seventies Americans that like, we want to keep the family together at almost all costs. And, you know, even if he's abusing his children, like we will get him into counseling. We will figure out what his deal is. We will keep the family together. And only as a last resort, can we, can we take the patriarch out of the household? Because that would be terrible. That would be a broken home and he has to provide for them. And women aren't supposed to work and we don't have jobs for them anyway. And if they do work, who's going to take care of the kids? You know, and, the, you know, the daycare sex abuse cases were also a way to stigmatize. You know, no one consciously did this. But what the effect they had was to stigmatize women who wanted to work and who had to right. put their children in daycare in order to do it. That's a good point. And to play on women's anxiety about being outside of the home and on everyone else's anxiety about women being outside of the home. And, um, you know, the people who suffered in the satanic panic were daycare workers, often women, um, in the Margaret Kelly Michaels case and in other cases, the allegations against them were strengthened by, you know, the, the idea that, well, Margaret Kelly Michaels is a bisexual or, you know, the San Antonio four are lesbians and therefore they're more likely to, to abuse children because God knows, you know, lesbians are the most dangerous people in America as opposed to the ones quietly holding quite a lot together. Um, <laughs> You know, like Margaret Kelly Michaels was a bisexual who didn't shower every day. And so am I. And so according <laughs> to that metric, like I would be fucked. Back then. Um, you know, and so we take kind of the revelation in the 70s that sexual abuse of children is something that has been quietly going on in respectable American homes for decades and no one has noticed it or done anything about it. And it's been this kind of well-kept secret. And no one has been taking the trauma seriously. And the answers to how to address that, unfortunately, for people who have an interest in keeping things the way they are, is to radically recreate the way that American families live and the way that America works. Where, you know, if we want to create a world where, you know, women can get their children out of an abusive home, that we need to give them the resources to be able to live without men financially supporting them. And we need to not stigmatize women who have children and are not married. And we need to take seriously the ways that men who function perfectly well in all other aspects of their lives can still terrorize the people in their homes. And if we're talking about child abuse not perpetrated by men in the family, then we need to talk about ways that, you know, holding the extended family together and not wanting to be impolite to anyone also facilitate ongoing child abuse. You know, the problems that kind of rampant child abuse that we started looking at in the 70s pointed to were in keeping with the agenda of, of feminists at the time and this idea of, you know, the system that we have of the nuclear family and the man being the unquestioned head of his household is like maybe not healthy for anybody. And instead of addressing that in a significant way, instead of, you know, finding ways to make a society where women were able to reasonably support themselves, where there was affordable childcare, we stigmatized childcare outside of the home. We made it part. We, we made my mother who could afford daycare terrified of the entire concept of daycare well into the late eighties and early nineties. We created a world where 
no, the problem's not the patriarchy. It's not men. Like, they, once again, are the ones who will protect us and who will prosecute criminals and who will save us from deviance. And the problem really is lesbian witches. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I think that one of the... The things that make moral panics dangerous and that make them moral panics is that they identify the symptoms of a problem that the status quo is causing and then blame someone who had nothing to do with inflicting those harms because they can't because they're outside of a, of a system of power. They don't have, you know, they find an outsider or a pariah to pin the problems that the system is causing on. And the thing about the Me Too movement is that women are pointing the finger at the actual perpetrators in this one. And we're pointing the finger at systems of power as they exist and as they govern everyone's lives in America, you know? And I do think that one of the things I can see happening is that we imagine that we're going to be taking down the Weinsteins of the world and instead end up with um, more aggressive sentencing, more aggressive, investigations that fall on, you know, the most vulnerable legal subjects in this country who are always the ones who are more likely to be the victims of wrongful conviction. So, you know, the poor and people of color, people who don't have a way, have a way to defend themselves against the law, you know, that's always a possibility, but we don't have to live in a society that takes women's trauma seriously by, you know, overzealously prosecuting people with no resources. That's another story that we've been sold, but we don't have to believe it. Um, I think that's a good place to end this part of our conversation. We've gone long, but I I would like to talk Disney with you for just a little bit. Um, First of all, because talking Satan and Disney in one conversation, uh, I think is great. And also because you wrote a piece that just went up at the baffler. Um, We'll include a link. The title is the magic kingdom. Uh, the, the subhead is the dark side of the Disney dream. And I just read it today. It's very interesting. It's, uh, it's very detailed. It includes, um, you visiting Disney as an adult. Um, it includes talking about a movie that I, oh, there's some thunder going on here, so, but everything's oh, fine. Cool. <laughs> um, uh, it's a movie that I wanted to see, uh, but haven't seen yet called Flutter Project. Yeah, see um, it when you want to just feel vulnerable and do some crying just some <laughs> Sunday afternoon. Um, but why don't, okay, why don't we start? Why did you want to write about Disney? Oh boy. Um, cause I went to Disney World and I just could not get my head around it. And I went to Disney World on the second workday of the Trump administration, which is now almost two and a half years ago now, which is just amazing. I really thought that we would be in nuclear winter by now, but here we are. Fingers crossed. Um, And felt like I had gone into that. It's like, you know, in Inception, when they go into like four levels of dream, they're like in the dream within a dream within a dream. Mm -hmm. That was what Disney World (laughs) felt like to me at that moment. Um, Did how so? How did you end up um, going to Disney? Like, why why were you there as, as an adult? With no children, as far as I know. Yeah, no, I, I, so I was there because I was visiting a really dear friend of mine who at the time was living an hour away from Orlando. She was uh, working, um, also working for dogs. We have some of the same work experiences. Millennials love working for dogs, I guess. <laughs> and we had become friends as teenagers. And I've written another piece about 
this that's much shorter um through the newsies fandom we both love newsies which yes i remember that piece it's a great piece thank you yeah and for anyone who has not had the joy of experiencing it newsies is a militantly pro-union musical that disney inexplicably made in 1992 starring a young christian bale Starring a young Christian Bale who was hired for not a musical and then had to be in one. And God bless him, he he did his best. Um, And he apparently does not like to be reminded of it these days. And so I was visiting her um, just in the, you know, the first days of the Trump administration. And I think we just were like, fuck it, let's go to Disney World. Like, this is terrible. Everything feels terrible right now. Um, and we went and I remember feeling like at the, you know, on the one hand, really delighted by it. Like there are parts of Disney world that I love. I love space mountain. I start off the piece by talking about how much I love space mountain. And actually we came, we, we did the space mountain ride and then we were leaving and this ride operator was like, Hey girls, you want to go again? We were like, Yes. And she like let us somehow like secretly cut the line and ride it again. And like, I still don't know how or why that happened, but it was amazing. And, uh, and I wasn't so worried I was going to die the second time. So I could really appreciate it. Um, but you know, we were there, we spent the day at Disney world. And I remember just also feeling like this is what America Disney world is what America really wants to be. Like this feels like, the dream that we are trying to put ourselves in by electing kind of Donald Trump as president, this idea that like, if like that he's promising, you know, was running on the platform of being like the capitalist genius president. And like Walt Disney was an actual capitalist genius. And he created this world where you can go and just not have to think about anything. Everything is taken care of for you. You don't have to make decisions. You don't really have to have a sense of identity. You're just kind of there to be delighted and and moved around. And, and that, you know, this is the world that I felt like people wanted to make America into those who elected Trump, that this is like the great again. Yeah. I've, you know, what, as far as I can tell the, um, the great again and make America great again refers to an idealized 1950s, like, you know, suburb. Mm-hmm. Um, so leave it to Beaver, more or less. Celebration then, Florida. Yes. Or where can you get that? Main Street USA, like, right. which is totally fake. Um, at least Celebration Florida is like, adheres to like new urbanist principles, as far as I know. <laughs> and, hmm. um, you know, it's not just a way to um, get you to buy souvenirs and, and ice cream cones and stuff like that. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so you know, there must. I wonder. It must be out there somewhere. Like Trump must have done some sort of Disney tie-in promotion at one point, like in the eighties or nineties, where he's standing in front of the oh, castle gosh, yeah. with what, whichever wife he was married to at the time. Um, I and, so yeah, like him. I like I, I. I feel like I can imagine this so vividly. I feel like I must have seen it, but I think this is just how we've learned to think now. Like something where it's him and like Mickey, and he's kind of awkwardly like. Mickey, I love big deals, but this is the biggest deal of all. And then they like ride on th- on Big Thunder Mountain. <laughs> there's actually there's a famous photo of him with like three or four other people in in um, character costumes, and I can't remember who it is exactly, but it might be like 
the Universal Studios uh, monsters or something. So like Frankenstein and the a werewolf and the mummy or something. And he's dressed in his standard outfit. And you know, it's and this would have been like uh, yeah, at the opening of a theme park or something in you know 2007. Um, but okay, but the piece is not really about Trump. It's more about. Mm-hmm. Disney and like the desires that Disney fulfills and then the things that are erased when yeah. you're at Disney. Um, and so part of that is this movie, the Florida, the Florida project, which came out two years ago. Uh, and yeah. Fall of 2017. And, and Willem Dafoe is the only known actor in it, but really mm-hmm. it's the main character. Well, who's the main character? Is it the young mother or the child? Yeah, the main character is is the child, so a six year old girl named Mooney, and it's really very much from her perspective and like seeing this this world of this you know this rundown pay by the week motel where she lives through her eyes, and they're kind of living, you know, at like right outside of Disney World where it's all like ninety nine cent off brand souvenirs of like Mackey Mouse and that kind of a thing. <laughs> um. So, yeah. So you you have an interesting analysis of this film. Um, which made me uh, actually want to see it. I think he, I even had the DVD from the library at one point, but they didn't get around to watching it. Um, but it's it, a hard it, world. There's so <laughs> we, we yes. can never watch all the DVDs. Exactly. Anyway. <laughs> uh, but it, yeah, it attracted some critical acclaim. I remember the Slate Culture Gabfest. They talked about it and were raving about it. Um, and Defoe was nominated for an Oscar, and that was the only Oscar that this movie made. Which is a very, it was like a very small indie movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Um, yeah, what do you see as the, like, you know, I guess when I like saw the trailer to the movie, I guess that there were people, um, the, the, th- the thing that I think Slate said was, like, it seems like this is going to be a movie in which an adorable Moppet, um, you know, warms the frozen heart of a crusty old, uh, mm-hmm. saloon keeper, <laughs> or, you know, or whatever, um, yeah, the, the world hotel like, manager. Yeah, and, you know, and... So, and so they like mismarketed the movie and it did not portray what it's actually about. So what is it like, what are the actual themes of this, of this film? Yeah. I mean, that to me, it's a movie about just what it is like to live in grinding poverty, basically. And that this is from the perspective of a six-year-old girl whose mom is, you know, has priors, was working as a stripper and then got fired because she wouldn't go into a back room and, and do extras. Um, and essentially is struggling to, and, and like if she got a job would spend it all on childcare, essentially um, childcare is a recurring theme and is trying to support herself and her young child in a, in an, in an America that claims to love mothers and children above all else and claims to love the child and want to protect the child and does absolutely nothing for them in terms of giving resources to, to parents, to single parents, to people living in poverty, to kids living in poverty and just kind of her, her about her mom doing her best to kind of hold a stable existence for them together. And that sort of falling apart as happens um, every day in this country. And so just a very, a story that is so commonplace that we just forget the heartbreak of it and uh and also about you know just this to me also the story of this little girl who's raised by a mom who like has problems has like you know a whole kind of traumatic history that we can kind of guess at based on the performance that uh the actress who plays her Bria Vanate gives who should have been nominated for an Oscar but I'm not in charge of these things <laughs> um and who you know 
in the midst of, of all of this instability and all of this um, omnipresent danger just at the margins, like also is, you know, to me is, is raised by a mother who loves her and who lets her know that she's loved and that she's a good kid as she is and kind of goes off and has adventures and finds her way around this world. And there's, you know, a scene that I love where the little girl Mooney has a new friend who's just moved into the motel next door named Jancy. And so their mom takes them hitchhiking, which like you watch as any kind of a kind of nice, polite, middle-class American are like, tut, tut, how dangerous, how can you expose your child to that? And takes them hitchhiking and to this parking lot, kind of at the edge of Disney World property and celebrates one of the girl's birthday by, you know, watching from the other side of the fence the fireworks that they have every night yeah. at the Magic Kingdom at Disney World. And it's like, that's for you. Those are your fireworks. And like, that's in this world where everything is difficult, nothing is free. You're kind of living in this day-to-day uncertainty, this day-to-day fear of like, how am I going to pay next week's rent? How am I going to make it um, that you kind of find a way as, as a parent and as a human to kind of clear space for, for the wonder and to, to do something like to do what you can uh, for, for the children in your life. And so it's, it's about the reality of parenting versus the fantasy of it in America, I think. Mm-hmm. And I saw it and just, it really affected me. And then I went, you know, went back the next day and brought my best friend to see it with me. And so really I saw that at the end of 2017. And so I feel like this piece is kind of a Frankensteining together of two of the experiences at the, you know, at the beginning and the end of that year that really kind of lodged in my heart and that I didn't know what to do with and wrote a very long essay about. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I, yeah. So, okay. You've convinced me to see Florida project and I don't know if you've convinced me to go to Disney Oh no, I, I, I think that like <laughs> what you're not trying to do. Um, Disney will pull you in like a magnet, whether you want it to or not, at some point in your life potentially. And I, ha- <laughs> I can never have a hand in that. Disney is stronger than all of us. That's true. You know, I was thinking, reading this and talking to, I talking to some friends, some of whom have children that are getting to the age where they know about Disney and want to go there. You know, during my childhood, it really was like the holy grail of what we wanted. And like mm-hmm. a kid would go to Disney and like, er, er, like I grew up in New Jersey. So it was a, it was a flight away and, um, mm-hmm. and like everyone would know. And when they would get back, they would like tell what they saw at Disney and all the great things. Right. And like, was there a new ride or what happened and how, how amazing it was. And oh, it's just like this incredible, like marketing achievement that they get. You know, this is yeah. like a, like a six year old kid is, you know, like proselytizing to the fellow students about you have to convince your parents to book the whole family flights to Florida and yeah. then, you know, take you to Disney so you can see, see the wonders that are there. Um, I mean, if you have a first grader doing high pressure sales tactics in the home, like you have done, your work is being done for you. Yes. Right? It's, like it's, it doesn't it's, get better than that. It's, it's incredible. Um, and I, one other part of this essay that I wanted to touch on briefly was you, um, on the theme of mothers and children, especially in Disney movies. And mm. you talk about Dumbo 
um, yeah. which I I have not seen since I was a kid. And there's a new oh version out as well that is inexplicably, you know, exists for no reason that we can understand besides, like, they just want to make money, which is, you know, it's a corporation. But Disney mm-hmm. is, is re- redoing all of its classics as live action for That's strange reasons. That's very weird. Just, to, you know, just as a cash cow. And, um, but they did, did, but they did Dumbo, which I guess is, like, a very short, it's, like, almost, it's, like, an hour or less. And, huh. um, you know, they had to add on, like, all this extra stuff because there's just not a lot there to actually... Also, like, what, like, the original Dumbo is very racist. Like, I'm... Yes, they cut the, they cut the racism, they cut the crows, and, like, hmm. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of racism threaded throughout, like, a lot of Disney movies, even once from mm-hmm. our childhood, but, like, if you've seen, um, I, I did see Lady and the Tramp as an adult a couple years ago. Oh, boy. That is very racist. Um, every, all the supporting dogs... <laughs> are, are, are um, stereotypical representations of their like national breed origin. Mm-hmm. So like, there's a you know like the German dog acts like officious and stuff, and there's like like the Chihuahua is like drunk and lazy. So it's just like shockingly racist. Oh. Um, so and it's they, funny too because it's not even like where they need to be racist for plot somehow. They're like, let's let's do racist dogs. Let's do yeah, well, I mean, in one sixties, <laughs> I think that that one's from the sixties. It was just like, yeah, this is what people like. They love like racial humor and stuff, and probably people didn't mostly did like that kind of yeah. thing back then. Uh, but but anyway, there, there's there's this theme of the absent parent, especially the absent mother, in a lot of these yeah. Disney movies. Um, you know, Bambi being maybe the classic one, but Dumbo, um, Dumbo's mother is, is like taken to the zoo jail or something. Dumbo's and... mother is incarcerated. <laughs> Let's not put too fine a point on <laughs> Why, why is she? I don't, cause I really don't remember Dumbo very well. Because, she, she commits a crime or something? Uh, I, yeah, according to the circus, I guess, which is the, <laughs> who's the boss of them. Um, yeah, Dumbo's mother is essentially protecting him from being taunted and attacked by these like little kids and is protects, protects her child. It's the same story as the Florida project. Like he will be hauled away and put in the pokey for protecting your kid. Um, and is put in elephant jail. And it's too, like, I can't like, I, my the job I have chosen for myself as a journalist is to research the saddest things in the world. And like, <laughs> I do fine with that. Like I make it sustainable. I cannot talk about Dumbo without bursting into tears. It's just, it's too much. Yeah. Dumbo's mom is put in elephant jail and I think it says mad elephant. She, she's in this cell, you know, and there's a scene where she reaches her trunk out, you know, and like picks up Dumbo and holds him and rocks him. And it's just, and then it's like how, and then he solves the situation by learning how to fly using the ears that he was taunted for, and then making a ton of money for the circus who then are like, Oh, you're valuable. We'll give you your mom back, I guess. It's It's not great. It's strange. (laughs) And I think, um, I just know about this because they're, they're the episode of Slate Culture Catfest where they discussed it. They talked a little mm-hmm. bit about the history of the um, of the movie, and I'm getting I'm probably going to get this a little bit wrong. But he, um, but I guess Disney was in kind of financial straits at that point because Fantasia had come out and was kind of a and bust. Didn't become a hit until people went and got high and saw it in the '60s. <laughs> so there was a 20 year latency period. Right. So, yeah. you know, so, so they'd only made like five or six movies as a studio at this point, maybe mm. fewer than that. And then they wanted to do something that was like easy and they thought would be like a guaranteed, um, a guaranteed hit and also short. Like I said, I think it's like 62 minutes or something. And they're just like sadness. 
But it, it's interesting that they, um, as far as I know, it's an original idea. I don't know if there's a, a legend or a myth of, or a fable of Dumbo, whereas most of the other ones were based on like German, you know, uh, mm. grim fairy tales and stuff, right. stuff like that. Um, but yeah, but yeah, the, I think the, you know, it, and uh, so, yeah, so absent mother, dead mother, um, <laughs> all of the ones that came out like in the ladies or early nineties, there's no mom for the main character. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does seem to be part of the, you know, like core myth of Disney is like either, either it's an orphan, um, or it's, or the, there's no mother. And then the child needs to like kind of figure out what to do on their own because the father is kind of like a standoffish king or something who can't really, yeah. can't really intervene too much He's to help standoffish the child. or an idiot basically. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I just, yeah, that is, I'm sure, I'm sure there's been like PhD theses written on the theme of mothers and children and absent mothers in, in Disney, but, um, you know, these are the like most popular uh, children's stories of the past hundred years, and mm-hmm. and most of them, the the mom is the mom is off screen, whereas you know, if you think about it, the mom is the most important uh, person to the child uh, in most cases. Um, so yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, Maybe, maybe uh, it should be fleshed out into a full essay by someone. Um, yeah, I think. Well, it's funny. So I'm staying with my friends who have a two year old, and so we've been watching. We've watched a lot of the Land Before Time movies this week. There are 14 of them. Oh my god. Um. Yes. That's there are crazy. more Land Before Time <laughs> movies than there are Friday the Thirteenth movies, which is how you know, like, you've really gotten into deep water with a franchise. Um. And we watched The Lion King the other day, and so my friend and my two friends whose toddler this other are both professional writers, which is very interesting because like they clearly are thinking more about story and how it works and what's meaningful and what's satisfying than the people who wrote these movies probably did, especially <laughs> when you get to like land before time X. Um, and uh, so my friend Patrick was saying when we were watching the Lion King, like, you know, I get like why they kill Mufasa. That's spoiler. Um, <laughs> you do that as like, you know, it makes it like makes the journey work. It makes Simba like immediately sympathetic. You care about him as a character, but like in real life, like you don't just have a parent die when you're really young and then you just kind of like move on into your journey. It's like a defining feature of your life. Like you're going to like be dealing with it and kind of defined by it forever in some way. And it's not just a way to, it's what he was saying is that he feels like Disney kind of uses it as a shortcut to make a character compelling Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to treating it as a major traumatic event really. Um, Which is why I'm such a big fan of Moana. (laughs) Moana (laughs) is very good. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's about someone, a, a girl with two living parents who has an adventure on purpose. Like she's like, I need to go do this thing to take care of my people, like, I'm going to go do it. And then she teams up with The Rock, who's an idiot, and, like, has to make all the decisions herself. And, like, also how so much of the hero's journey, which is, like, standard Disney, is, like, you know, you don't want to have an adventure, but it just, like, happens to you, and you have to deal with it. And your parent dies, and you're, like, thrust into, you know, all of these events. Mm -hmm. And how there's also a surprising... Disney has been surprisingly reluctant historically to... uh, you know, to, to give us characters with agency, because that seems to be 
I don't know. I find characters of the agency more interesting, but there appears to be some kind of financial or kind of story making reckoning there where there's a sense that like someone whose stuff just happens to is easier to identify with than someone who makes choices. But hmm, in conclusion, watch the Florida project <laughs> and then watch Moana. Cause you're going to need it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Moana will, will definitely cheer you up. Um, and uh, I, I recommend watching that as well. It's a great soundtrack. Also, it's uh, Lynn oh Miranda yeah. did the soundtrack. Um, okay, so on that uplifting note, we should probably end. We were thinking about talking about dogs, but I think we've gone too long, so we'll have to save that for next time. I will just I will go do my dog writing, and then I'll bring that back to you, and we can talk about it. Okay, great. Um, so Sarah Marshall, you are on Twitter. Is it remember underscore Sarah? It is. Oh my remember goodness. underscore Thank Sarah you. with an H. You remember the underscore. <laughs> Um, and you are an entertaining presence there and you have numerous running themes, including something we thought about talking about, but I guess we, we kind of forgot about, which is a uh, teen lawyer. Oh uh, yeah. Next a, time. A, um, TV show. That's that... a show about a, an imaginary show about a girl who makes choices and has adventure. Well, she, no, she does have a dead dad. Oh fuck. <laughs> I did the Disney thing. I have to go think about this. It's deep in the mythos, the DNA, the cultural DNA. Yeah, you have, you, you've kind of group, uh, created a uh, imaginary, like, 80s or 90s sitcom about a teen lawyer. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, and lots of other stuff as well. And I'm on Twitter as A-R-Y-H-W. Um, so thank you, Sarah. Uh, thank you viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.